If you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Romans chapter 12. We're continuing our series through the book of Romans. Uh, Now, as many of you know, our theme for this year has been M3, Make, Mature, and Multiply. And each time you think about M3 and what we mean by that, uh, I I pray that three names come to mind, at least three names come to mind, uh, that there is someone in which you're praying that God would make them a disciple. Uh, You're praying for them that the Lord would reveal their need for a Savior. Maybe you're having intentional conversations with them. Maybe you're inviting them over for dinner, praying that God would save them. At the same time, I pray that there is someone that is helping you mature as a believer. So yes, we are called to make disciples. We're also called to mature as disciples. And so that can be your missional community group leader. That can be a friend that you meet with on a weekly or biweekly basis just to check in and ask accountability questions or dig into a good book. And then finally, there should be someone in your life that you're pouring into. That, that you are multiplying yourself as a disciple maker so that you can say, hey, this is, this is something that God has taught me, and I want to be a good steward of what God has entrusted me, and so I'm going to uh, pass this along, and I want to make a personal investment with you as well. We have various ways to do that um, in an organized way at the Oak Church, and we have various ways that this is happening in an organic way all throughout the life of our church. And so as you think through M3, you know, we're coming into what is the end of the year now. It's hard to believe that we're already in September. And at the same time, I want to challenge you as a church family, invite you as a church family to finish strong as we think through this theme for the year, to make, mature, and multiply disciples. And a big part of what we're talking about today is what it looks like to mature as a disciple in discovering how you serve those in the church how you serve your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, how God could use you to multiply disciples through your unique contribution and through a a God-given desire, uh, through gifts that he has entrusted to you uh, to serve other people. So before we look at Romans 12, I just want to take a moment to pray for us. Uh, Thank God for this time that we have together. Lord, you are good. Jesus, you are seated on your throne, and and we come before you now asking that you would speak through your word. Jesus, as as we know, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, you are the author and perfecter of our faith, and we are so glad that you see to completion what you have begun in us. You are the perfecter of faith, and we recognize how imperfect our faith often is. We recognize how dependent and needy we are, but Lord, may we rejoice in the fact that you in your sovereign plan have not just saved us from something, from our sin, but you've saved us for something, for your service, that you would get glory through imperfect people like us who serve in your name. And so, uh, God, would you use this passage of scripture uh, to challenge us, maybe to move us out of a comfort zone? Lord, do you encourage us to comfort us uh, when perhaps we feel like uh, our, our lives lack purpose, Lord, would we see that because the Holy Spirit is at work within us, there is a, a great purpose that we can give our lives to as we submit our bodies to you as a living sacrifice, as you renew our mind, as we seek to both discover and to do your will for your glory. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you have ever seen the Cincinnati flag 
then you're probably familiar with the crest that is right in the center of that flag. And you'll notice that there is a Latin phrase right in the center that reads, Juncta Javant. Um, Now, since I was Latin club president in high school, I had to look up what this meant uh, because a lot of good that did for me, right? Uh, the, The meaning of this word or this phrase is strength and unity or together we strive, or, um, you know, unity assists. It's basically this meaning that uh, a group of people are better when they are working together for a common purpose, for a common goal. And so, in 1802, before our city was even officially a city, in a small town council meeting, a group of people came together and they said, we want this town to uphold this value, this principle. That, that together, in unity, there is great strength. That if we commit to this principle, there will be health and prosperity in this town, in this city. That a people would flourish if they realize that they're not just independent people that make up a town or a city, but they are an interdependent people that are making up this town or this city. And what's interesting, whenever we come to Romans chapter 12, specifically in verses 3 through 8, is we see that Paul is upholding a very similar principle, but from a biblical perspective. Now, what is Paul's aim in Romans chapter 12? Well, he's not seeking to establish a new city. He isn't walking into this church in Rome with, with the goal of holding a town council meeting. No, he's seeking to establish a Christ-centered gospel community that is called the local church. And in verses 3 through 8 in Romans chapter 12, what he is going to say is that each Christian has been given a unique gift. Because of the way that God has wired you, because of the skills that he's given you, the passions that you have, the desires that you have, your unique perspective, your point of view, and because of the Holy Spirit working in you, you have a unique contribution to the body of Christ. That we are members of the same body of Christ working for a common goal, which is the glory of God. And so if I was to summarize verses 3 through 8, I would say it something like this. That you have been given spiritual gifts to serve the church for the glory of God and the good of one another. That you have been given spiritual gifts to serve the church and for the glory of God and the good of one another. Now, as I said last week, Paul has begun a new line of thought in chapter 12. There's a shift that takes place at the beginning of Romans chapter 12. Because as we saw last week, in chapters 1 through 11, he is describing the mercies of God. And then he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to now present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He's saying, because of what God has done, now you go and do this. In Scripture, the imperatives, the commands always follow the indicatives, the character of God and what He has already accomplished on your behalf. Let's read Romans 12, 1 through 2 again. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, as Paul continues writing 
the letter to the church in Rome, he's going to take the guesswork out of discovering what the will of God is. He gives broad descriptors at the very end. He says it's what is good, it's what is acceptable, and it's what is perfect. And so you can kind of run your whole life through that grid and think, okay, is this the will of God? Is this good? Is this acceptable to him? Is this perfect? Is this a holy thing to do? And at the same time, he is going to give action steps. And the first action step that he gives following that command is, hey, don't think too highly of yourself, but think with sober judgment. See that God has assigned to you particular gifts, and you should use those gifts for the good of one another, seeing that you are members of one another, different roles in the church, and yet working toward the same goal, which is the glory of God and the good of one another. Now, here's what this means for you, that if you are a Christian, you should not be asking the question, do I have a spiritual gift? But rather, you should be asking the question, how has God gifted me? And where can he use me? How has God gifted me? And where can he use me? Now, there isn't an exhaustive list in Scripture of spiritual gifts. Uh, Perhaps that's helpful to you as as we look at this. And so maybe you're thinking, all right, well, well, what has God designed me for? How has God designed me to build up the body of Christ? And at the risk of being too simplistic, I would put it like this. That you will often find... Where, where God has, has wired you to serve in the body of Christ whenever you look at where opportunity and ability overlap, right? So where is there an opportunity to serve? And how has God given me an ability to meet that need? And so whenever you look at where opportunity and ability overlap, you will often see where God has intended you to serve. So we need team leaders. We need missional community leaders do you want to lead? We have various areas to serve in the life of our church. Do you have time? Do you have a desire to to see other people grow by the generosity of of giving your time, your talents, your treasures? Think about the band. Can you keep a beat? Look at all the the creative team has has produced for our church to, to put scripture in the hands of our church members. And I also want you to see that the gifting that God has given you isn't just limited to volunteer positions or roles in the church that have specific titles, right? This can simply be a, a recognition that, oh, that person's sitting alone, and I want, and I want to get to know them. Or thinking, uh, if, if someone comes in new, how do they get connected? Well, I'll, I'll just get their number, and I'll invite them over for for dinner. I'll grab coffee with them. There, there are a myriad of ways that we serve, not just in this room on a Sunday morning, but all throughout the week. Whenever we look at Romans 12, it's my desire to give you three observations in this passage uh, that, that will help you discover your spiritual gifts, apply them, and for us to ultimately see our goal in serving one another as the glory of God. So with that being said, let's read verses 3 through 8. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ 
according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The first observation that we will see from this passage is that your gift is for God's glory, not your own. That the spiritual gift that God has given you is specifically designed to bring God glory and not to make much of you. Whenever Paul begins verse 3, he's speaking by the grace that is given to him. Now, there he is speaking from his apostleship. Whenever Paul says, you know, the grace given to him, he he uses this phrase sometimes in relation to uh, the office that he has as an apostle. And so, uh, here, he is not giving us organizational advice. He is giving us God's blueprint for how the church is designed to operate. It's the only faithful option for the church. Now, if, if anyone could think highly of themselves, would it not be Paul? And yet, Paul, as this apostle who's going to write much of the New Testament, who has seen great fruit in his ministry, is going to say, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. In, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes that it is through his weakness that Christ has displayed his power, not thinking much of himself, but much of the giver of spiritual gifts. If you're doing the Oaks Bible through a year reading plan, then you read in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's own account of his conversion, where he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he's talking about his conversion, Christ appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. That's the testimony of each and every one of us. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And I aim to not receive this grace of God in vain, but to receive the gift of salvation And then to use the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit has entrusted to me for the service of Almighty God. Paul gives two commands here. You can see them in your text. He says, To everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So he's saying, don't think of yourself too highly. But then he says, but to think with sober judgment. Now, I think these two commands are especially important whenever we talk about any area of life, right? We shouldn't be prideful. Uh, We shouldn't think of ourselves to be better than we actually are. We're not superior to anybody else. We shouldn't uh, compare ourselves to one another and think like, oh man, I really have it all together. Um, And at the same time, we should think with sober judgment, right? We also just shouldn't think, well, I'm completely worthless and useless because that is to ignore that we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ and that we're made in the image of God. But I think it's especially important whenever we come to spiritual gifts, because what Paul is saying here is there will be a tendency to be proud and arrogant because of the gifts that you have, or there's a tendency to think little of yourself, to discredit what God is doing in you, because maybe you compare your spiritual gifts to somebody else, and you're like, man, I really wish I was doing that. I really wish God, you know, had gifted me the ability to do that, and I'm not. 
We have either uh, accidentally or sinfully, we have a tendency to attribute a value to certain spiritual gifts over others in which God does not. That's one of the things that I hope that we discover in this passage is to see that every single person is gifted in a unique way in which the body would not function as it is supposed to if you were to neglect the use of your God-given gift. So Paul here says, don't think too highly of yourself, but at the same time, don't think that, that there's no part for you to play in the kingdom of God, but think with sober judgment, think with sobriety. I think for, for us, we need to look at our gifts and recognize our ability to think too highly of ourselves. Because I know that there, there are people in the room who perhaps have the gift of administration. You're very organizational. And what is your tendency? To see someone who doesn't have their life arranged in alphabetical order, the person that doesn't color code their planner, and you're just like, this person, what is their deal? You know, right? And, and the people that have the gift of teaching, maybe, maybe you're prone to be hypercritical of the way that someone else is explaining something. Or maybe you're, you're the type of person that has the gift of evangelism, right? And you're just always figuring out ways to insert the gospel into conversations you're having. And you're listening to somebody in, in your missional community group, and, and you're like, well, why haven't they shared the gospel with their coworker yet? Like, what's taking so long? I mean, do I need to, like, come to work with them and just do it for them? Like, what's, what's the deal here? And Paul is saying, hey, don't do that. If you are gifted in something... Could it be that God is actually using you to encourage your brother and sister in Christ? Don't think too highly of yourself. And at the same time, he's saying, think with sober judgment. Don't think about a gift that you have and just think, uh, this, you know, I, I mean, yeah, I, I guess God can use it, but I, I don't really know if it's that significant. Or, or maybe you fall into the trap of uh, measuring the significance of your gift by the results that you see from it. And yet, what does Paul say? Man, I, you know, I, I do the watering, but it is God who brings the fruit. We don't measure the significance of our gifts by the results that they bring. Ephesians 2.10 says this, as Megan read earlier. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul says, you are the Lord's workmanship. Here's another way to say that. You have been handcrafted for the glory of God, and the church would not function properly without you. God has wired you with unique gifts, unique desires, uh, a unique point of view, personality. That God has, God has wired you in such a way that there isn't a duplicate of you, and we don't need two of anyone else, but we do. We do see God's delight in using you in his kingdom. Does he need us? No, absolutely not. But is it is a delight for God to use us. And then Paul grounds these two commands in the truth that is he who assigns the gift. He says, think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Because our gifts are given through faith in Christ, they are not given through our earning. They're not the result of our effort. It's not like, well, you know what? You get this gift because, man, you worked really hard to get into the kingdom of God. No. How do we enter the kingdom of God? By faith. 
And it is through faith that God assigns these gifts. And because God is the one who entrusts gifts to us, he is also the one who can teach us how to use them. He's also the one who, who gets to direct us in the way that we use those gifts. In my basement, on a shelf, I have two tool bags. Uh, some of you guys know that, that I do this every year. I've got two tool bags that are fairly empty. Uh, and one of them has my oldest son's name on them, Brooks, and the other one has my youngest son's name on them, Charlie. And each year for Christmas, what I do is I go to Home Depot or Lowe's, and I will, I will buy them each one tool, and I will put it in their bag. All right, so right now in Brooks's tool bag is like a screwdriver and a crescent wrench, like all things that couldn't cause too much damage, right? There's not like a, a sawzall in there or anything like that. Okay, but here's, here's what I'll do. Anytime I'm hanging a picture frame or, you know, we're building Ikea furniture or I'm, I'm fixing the vacuum cleaner because something got sucked up in there that shouldn't have been. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell them, hey, go grab your tool bags and, you know, they'll get on, you know, on the floor right next to me and we'll, we'll start working on it. And, you know, they're, they're like using their screwdriver and, you know, how, however, and I'm telling them how each of these things work. As their father, I've entrusted them with gifts. And, and whenever there is a problem, when there is an opportunity, when, when there's a way to, to serve mom by, by fixing something that is broken in our house, we grab our tool bags, we go together, and we get to work. Now, at the same time, God has entrusted you, your father has entrusted you with gifts. And he is saying, hey, now let's use them Use them to serve others, not for your glory, but God is, is giving you gifts for his glory. One more thing before, before we move on from this point is I want you to see that any time the Holy Spirit is working in someone to, uh, to bring about the use of a spiritual gift, it should always point to the giver of the gifts and not the one that has received the gift. Now, why do I say that? Well, John 16, Jesus is teaching about the sending of the Holy Spirit. He says to his disciples, when the spirit of truth comes, he will, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, here's the key phrase. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All, the fa all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, here's, here's the caution. Uh, whenever you see someone using uh, a spiritual gift, and it seems as if they are using that spiritual gift in a way that is to magnify self and not to make much of God, then that should make you cautious to follow that person. I, I think this also causes each of us to look at the ways that God has gifted us. I mean, you know, whenever you're using your gifts in the church, sure, you're going to receive compliments and there might be fruit from your ministry. And at the same time, what does, what does Jesus say about the Holy Spirit? That he's going to, whenever he's at work, he's going to glorify Christ. And so, so we reflect Christ and we deflect the glory that anyone might give to us to Christ. And we say, no, it's all him. Like, I don't even know where I would be if it was not for Christ. 
and yet he is being magnified through whatever he has entrusted to me. Because I do think that we all have a tendency in some form or fashion to allow our gift to become our identity, but whenever your gift becomes your identity, you've committed the sin of idolatry. Right, so, so whenever you begin, I mean, th- like, I, I wrestle with this, especially as a part of my vocation, right? Like, God has entrusted me with the gift of teaching, and at, at the same time, if I find myself having highs or lows based upon what someone says to me at the back of the room because what they thought about my sermon, then my gift has now become my identity, and when your gift becomes your identity, you commit the sin of idolatry. And yet, what, what should we do? Am I being faithful to the Lord? Regardless of the results, regardless of what other people say, regardless of other people's approval, because I'm ultimately seeking to worship Him by discovering and doing the will of God. Right? That, that is worship of the giver of the gifts and not worshiping the gift itself. We don't think highly of ourselves, but there is one that we do think highly of, and that is the Lord, which leads us to our second observation. You have been given a unique role that is a part of the church's common goal. You have been given a unique role, but we are members of one another, as Paul says here in verse 5. We each have different gifts, and yet in, in that diversity, there is great unity. We have a singular goal. Look again at verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one in body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Let's stop right there. You've been given a unique role that is a part of the church's common goal, which is to bring glory to God. And yet he talks about us here being members of one another. Whenever you hear the word membership, what do you often think of? Uh, you often think of a contractual agreement between two parties in which one person pays a fee and then the other party then extends benefits. Uh, so if you have a, an annual zoo membership, then you pay a fee at, you know, at one point in the year. And then for the year, you get access to you know, entering the zoo anytime you want. If you get the gold pass or whatever, you get to get on the train. It's great. All right. Uh, let's say you have a, a, a gym membership. If you pay that, that monthly gym membership, you have access to amenities that someone who is not a member of that gym cannot have. Well, here's what's problematic. Sometimes, especially in a church like ours, where we talk about church membership a lot, right? Like, I don't think I've ever been a part of a, a church like the Oaks that talks about church membership as much as we talk about church membership. But here is where that can be problematic. Whenever we bring that our current cultural understanding of membership into the body of Christ, and then we think, oh, this this kind of feels like it's not right. Like, there are are like special people who are on the inside, and then they are granted like special benefits or, or access. And so, we have a decision to make as elders, right? Well, do we just say, well, the the worldly understanding of this word membership has been so distorted by our our modern understanding of it that we should just pitch it out? Or do we say, no, this is such a biblical word that even though we might have to do some extra explanation, and even though there could be some confusion on on the front end, it is worth keeping and, and teaching 
uh, the robust meaning behind the biblical way that we think of church membership. And so, as you can tell, we've opted for the latter. Because what we find in this passage is that when the word member is used, it's not talking about a bunch of people that pay a fee and then they're, you know, like members of a special club, granted special access. No, it is all about being members of a body. That there can be people who are individual components of a collective whole. C.S. Lewis says it like this. Christianity thinks of human individuals, not as mere members of a group or items in a list, but as organs in a body, different from one another, and each contributing what no other could. Members of a body. That's, that's a way that, that God has designed the Christian to, to think about themselves. Right? So in the same way that you know, the legs are able to move the body out of harm's way, or the, the way that the hand is able to bring food to the mouth that nourishes the entire body, the way that, that the ears are, are able to receive information that produces action throughout the rest of the body, for any part of the body to be ignored is for the whole body to suffer. And at the same time, as members of one another, we work to a common goal, unity, and yet there is great diversity. Look at verse 4. Paul says, as in one body, that is the body of Christ, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. He's saying each person has a different function. Each person is designed as a part of God's divine blueprint to function in a different way. But then he goes on to say, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Perhaps you're expecting him to say, and members of it. But what does he say? Members one of another. By saying this, he is in essence saying, your spiritual gifts have been entrusted to you. But they don't just belong to you. They belong to us. There is a divine obligation and responsibility to steward your gifts well for the good of every person in this room, for the good of the Christian brothers and sisters that are around you, so that God is glorified and so that his body is nourished and built up I want to tell you a story that, that perhaps, uh, you know, provides some, some further explanation here. Just before our, our youngest son, Charlie, was born in 2020, me and Brett went to Perfect North to go snowboarding. And um, what you should know about me is that I like snowboarding, but I'm not a snowboarder. Right? So, do you, do you get that distinction? We talked about it at an entire staff lunch today, like the difference between like being a thing or just like doing a thing. Well, I am someone who likes snowboarding, but I'm not a snowboarder. And one of the ways that I sought to prove that accidentally in 2020 is going down, you know, like the last hill of the day and Brett talked me into a steeper hill than what I really felt comfortable with and I just ate it. 
you know, like really hard, caught an edge and landed right on my, my left shoulder uh, to the point that I went and saw a doctor and he was like, you know, you didn't like tear anything, but things aren't looking good. So just put it in a sling for, you know, four weeks. Well, we were like a week away from Charlie's due date. And so I'm like, well, that's not great. And so, you know, Abby's in full nesting mode. I'm like one-handed doing everything, you know, trying to like move the dresser and, you know, build the changing table or, you know, like you're doing all of this stuff. And, and here's what that situation taught me about the human body and how it applies to the body of Christ. That for a period of time, when there is a member of the body that is hurting, the other members of the body can, can compensate, can come alongside and help that member of the body heal. And so, man, some of you perhaps are just reeling as you hear a sermon about use your spiritual gift. We've got these volunteer opportunities. We, you know, need this here, this here, this here. And you're like, man, I feel like I am hurting, right? I'm in the sling and I just need a place to heal. And I'll say, hey, you know what? There's a place for that in the church. So, so let us, if that's you, let us come alongside you and use our spiritual gifts to build you up. And whenever you feel like it, it's the right time, as, as you pray through it and you're like, you know what? I do think I can press in here. And I think that God's gifted me here and I don't want to neglect using that. And so I think I'm ready. Man, we, in, we invite that. No, there's a place for that here. And at the same time, here's something else that I learned from my minor injury. If, if I would have taken those four weeks and said, this is kind of nice, you know? Like, my, my left arm, I just, you know, it's kind of nice to just keep it in a sling and it's warm and comfortable over there. What would, what would have happened? Well, my left arm would have begun to atrophy. And it would have gotten, you know, the muscles would have began to deteriorate. It wouldn't have been healthy. And at the same time, man, my, my shoulder on the right side and, and my, the right side of my body, it would have started to, to suffer because it's bearing weight that it in itself was not intended to bear. And at the same time, I want you to know, if, if you're here and your, your conception of church is more about like, hey, what can I get from this gathering, uh, you know, this is more of like a, something that I consume and not a place that I contribute. In the nicest way possible, I want to say, you're going to experience spiritual atrophy because you're not ex exercising the gifts that God has entrusted to you. And the other brothers and sisters that are around you in Christ, and we'll, we'll suffer because we don't get to experience the use of your gift. And, and perhaps we find ourselves trying to do things that in all honesty, we, we might not be the best at. And so this is, this is an invitation for everyone to use your gifts for the glory of God because God has each given us unique ways in which we are wired to serve him as an act of worship. Which brings us to our third observation, that you must discover and develop the gift that God has given you for the good of others. You must discover and develop the gift that God has given you for the good of others. Look at verses 6 through 8 with me. Paul says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity... 
the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So you must discover and develop the gifts that God has given you for the good of others. Now, Paul here has just given a list of spiritual gifts. This is an exhaustive list. You won't find an exhaustive list of all the spiritual gifts in Scripture. But typically, we see this perhaps most apparent in 1 Peter 4. Spiritual gifts fall into two categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Uh, Now, this doesn't mean that um, the speakers don't serve and it doesn't mean that the servers don't speak. But typically, the spiritual gifts can fall into one of these two categories. Uh, Now, perhaps, and this should be fun, whenever we think through spiritual gifts, it's helpful for us to talk about which gifts are active today. Uh, There there are two points of view here. There are uh, the continuationists and the cessationists. So the continuationists would say, I believe that every spiritual gift, even the sign gifts, uh, speaking in tongues, you know, prophetic words, that those are all completely active in the church today. And then the cessationist, like the name sounds, would say, I believe that some of the gifts that God gave the early church have ceased because now we have scripture and, you know, it's the canon is closed. And through this revelation, these sign gifts are no longer normative or necessary in God's church. Um, now, I will tell you, I'll be the first to tell you that our church members have, have different views whenever it comes to this topic. This is not a first tier issue at the Oaks. So whenever we talk about the bodily resurrection of Christ, that's first tier. The virgin birth, uh, you know, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, that's first tier. But whenever it comes to our second tier issues, there are differences in viewpoint. And, and we think that's okay. That actually contributes to the health of our church body. Even our elders have various viewpoints here. Um, and so I'll show my cards a little bit. Uh, I am a cautious, very cautious, continuationist. And, and here's, here's why I would say that. Um, because I would say that because of our context, because of uh, our access to Scripture, because of the way that God has uh, made himself known through local congregations, specifically in North America, that, that these gifts are not as normative and as necessary as they were in the early church. And, and at the same time, I, I hear really good arguments um, on the other side. And I said, and I would say, I think this is biblical, right? So, so I can see both viewpoints. It's not a hill that I would die on. Um, and, and both groups, sometimes a straw man is invented to where somebody would say, oh, well, are you saying that God can't do what he was once able to do? Or are you saying that scripture isn't sufficient and now we still need, you know, these, these things that uh, perhaps are, are more sign gifts? Like, no, nobody's actually saying that. So let's not just, you know, create arguments that nobody's saying to create division in the church. Uh, now some of you are thinking, um, I am nervous and others are thinking, finally, right? Like, like yeah, you know, which even if you just want to like raise your hands in worship or say amen when I'm preaching, like if you're, you know, go ahead and just test the waters there and then, and then we'll see where we go from here. <laughs> there we go. So, uh, 
But you're thinking, okay, well, so how would we actually do this? Whenever we taught 1 Corinthians 14 forever ago, we talked about this. And, I mean, this is helpful because 1 Corinthians 14 talks all about orderly worship. Paul's saying if there's something that is chaotic that would be offensive to an unbeliever who's not familiar with, you know, what takes place in a church, and they come in and people are speaking languages they don't understand, and there's just chaos, he's like, that's not going to be helpful for anybody. All right, so how would we do this at the Oaks? Well, let's say that someone says, I have the gift of prophecy. I have a prophetic word, and, and God gave it to me. And I would say, okay, well, our elders, uh, the six guys who are, um, you know, entrusted with the shepherding of this flock who will one day stand before Christ in accordance to 1 Peter 5, are responsible for protecting our flock and guarding our flock. So if you'd say, you know what, God spoke to me and he wants me to say something, I would say, hey, before you grab a mic, you need to talk to one of our pastors. And let's, let's weigh the word that you have to say. And if it's something biblical, then I have, I have no problem with Jimmy coming up on stage during the welcome and say, hey, you know what, um, we, we feel like this is something that God wants to say to our congregation. And this is a passage that I want to read over you. I think that's great. If someone says, hey, I have the gift of tongues, we'll come to a pastor, right? That's our authority in the church. And we'd, we'd say, does anybody have the gift of interpretation? That's how we see it in 1 Corinthians 14. It's controlled. You're able to control your tongue. That's a gift that's given. It's very obvious in Scripture. We say, does anybody have the gift of interpretation? If, if you do, great. We'd do it just like the prophetic word. And if not, we'd say, you know, um, we don't feel like this is fitting at this moment to share with our congregation. Now, I, I think that is a biblical and balanced way to handle that, that I think uh, both honors that God can operate in, in whatever way he pleases, and at the same time helps the person who would say, I, I don't want in any way to diminish the authority of Scripture to say, no, we're still, we're, Scripture is above all. Um, and at the same time, we're, we're open-handed on second-tier issues. And that's my, my personal conviction, uh, but perhaps it's helpful for you to know. Maybe you're here and you're like trying to check this church out, and you're like, I, I don't know how, how this would happen. Well, I'll say in, in seven years, nothing like that has happened, um, but that is at least the way that we would handle a situation like this. And we could keep talking, right? But perhaps to, to tie a bow on this, it's most helpful to followed this conversation where Paul took it in 1 Corinthians 13. Because what did he say? He said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging, clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, right, so generous. If I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. All right, so what is the most important part of this conversation? How are you loving other people with the gift that God has entrusted to you? I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, I, I speak tongues more than any of you do, but I would rather speak five words that are un understandable that are going to be an encouragement to a brother or sister in Christ than thousands of words in tongues. And I think that's a helpful way for us to think through it as well. In this passage, here's what we see. Here's the main point before we just get off in that tangent. We learn that every person has a gift and they should use them. Verse 6, according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then each person has a tendency to neglect their gift or to misuse their gift. 
because he then walks through them and just says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching. Because here's what can happen. Someone can have the gift of teaching, but what do they find themselves doing? Studying right? Because they just love to study. They love learning the different meanings of words and how this passage connects to this passage. And they just get so enthralled with that that it's like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be teaching people, but I'm, I'm, just, I'm just studying. Now you have to do both, right? Or the person that leads, he says, lead with zeal. Why, why is that so necessary? Because if you have a position of leadership, you can sinfully misuse it and begin to lead for power, lead for recognition. It says the one who does acts of mercy, do it with cheerfulness, you don't get a text from somebody and you're like, oh, what do they need this time? No, you say, praise God that, that I'm the person that they would reach out to so that I can cheerfully serve them. So Christian, don't let your gifts collect dust. And perhaps at this point you're wondering, well, well how do I know what my spiritual gifts are? Uh, two questions for you. First, what do you have a God-given desire to do? Uh, I've heard one pastor explain it like this. If you are in a room with 10 people, what, what do you feel like the Holy Spirit is energizing you to do? Do you want to teach them something about God? Do you want to gather them together and, and pray for a, a specific ministry or missionary cause? Do you want to throw out an icebreaker uh, question just to get them all connected to one another to kind of, you know, begin to, to nurture Christian community? Do you want to say, hey, I noticed this need over here. Do you want to know their needs so that you can begin serving them? If you're in a room with, with 10 people, what do, you, what do you feel most apt to do? That's, that's a part of the way that God has designed you. Where do you notice opportunities or issues? Not critically, right? Not as a problem finder, but as a problem solver. You're thinking, man, what would it look like for us to, to reach this population or to begin this ministry or to sure up this area in the church body? And then secondly, what do other people affirm in you? What do other people ask your advice about? They're like, hey, you know what? I've noticed you're really good at this. Uh, many of us had a co-op in, in high school or college. And whenever you begin a co-op, you normally have an idea of what you want to do. You're like, oh, I've always dreamed about, you know, becoming an engineer or, you know, being an accountant or, uh, you know, working with a physical therapist. And, and so, but then you start to do it and you're like, no, this is, this is not like really what, what I'm supposed to be doing. Or, or sometimes you're like, man, this, this is it. I really enjoy doing this. Um, here's what I'll say. If you, want to, if you want to discover your gift, you, just, you have to serve. You have to prayerfully ask God, hey, help me discover my gifts, but I'm also going to jump in, right? I'm going I'm to begin serving. I'm going I'm to see the needs in the body of Christ, whether it's in a formal way on a Sunday or throughout the week, and you're saying, I'm going I'm to start meeting needs because regardless of the spiritual gifts that you have been given, we're all called to obey the command to love one another and to practice the one another's of the body of Christ. So just because perhaps you don't have a spiritual gift that someone else has doesn't excuse you from still being obedient to the gospel, but you should discover your gifts and seek to develop them for the glory of God. God has put us each here to be contributors and not just consumers. Uh, I think about that in, in many ways. I often see it play out like this in the life of our church. So uh, someone will teach on loving one another in specific ways. And then someone who has the gift of mercy 
we'll notice, oh, you know what, this person in our congregation just had a surgery, and I don't really know if, if they're going to be able to, to cook meals for themselves. And then someone who has the gift of administration or organization will say, let me put a meal train together, and you know, I'll reach out to them and ask what days of the week that they're able to receive meals and what's going to be convenient for them. And then they, they shoot that email out, and then there are all these people with the gift of generosity and service that begin cooking meals and then taking it over to them. And then the person that has received those meals has the gift of encouragement. And so then they begin writing cards and, you know, building up the body who is involved in the process all along the way. And a watching world sees this rare picture of love that could only be found in the people of God, and God gets glory. You see, that's why it's important for us to discover our spiritual gifts and to develop them for the glory of God. We think through our spiritual gifts that we have been given. And at the same time, the gifts that we have been given are designed to point to the giver of those gifts. So, so we come to this passage and we say, Lord, help me to think rightly, not too highly of myself, but highly of you. Help me to see that we are members of one another with a divine obligation to serve one another for your glory. Help me to discover my gift so that I can, I can use it for my fellow brother and sister in Christ. And all of this is pointing toward the Lord, the great giver of gifts. And at the risk of quoting a passage that might ring so familiar in your ears that you could miss the emphasis of it, John 3.16 defines God as a generous God who has given the greatest gift we could ever receive. Because what does it say? For God so loved the world, what did he do? That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God has given, not just gifts enabled by the Spirit, but salvation through his own son. He has given his own son. We read of Christ in Philippians 2, that we should have this mind in ourselves that was Christ's Jesus's. That though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What do we see? That we can receive salvation because our generous God gave his only son and Christ our Savior became our servant going to the cross to take on the penalty of your sin, to absorb the wrath of God and the penalty of death in your place, that he was resurrected to new life so that he would give life to all who believe, and that he has formed a new community that has been saved from our sin and for his service. And so we worship our King, our Savior, the one who was a servant, the one who deserves all glory and praise. And for some of you, that worship begins by receiving that gift, by by realizing that the main emphasis of this message for you is that Christ gave his Son, and you should receive him for the salvation from your sins and to become a child of God, to be welcomed into the family of God. For others of you, it is to realize what it means to be a family, 
part of the family of God and to serve one another. Because what we realize is that Christ has come. That this passage is not about establishing a new city, but the fact that we await the day that Christ will come and bring the new heavens and the new earth. And as a church family, we have a God-given privilege to prepare one another for that day, for our good and for his glory. Let's pray.